this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, I kind of think about that interview question, like, what do you want on your tombstone? You know, and for me, it would be husband, father, surgeon in that order. You know, you want to talk about you know, having an impact in the world. And yes, we do that as, as physicians for sure. But I look at my boys and I'm, I'm so proud, you know, of what they can contribute to the world. And I said it earlier, you know, we communicate and compromise. I think as in any successful marriage and relationship, the compromise part, because there are times when, you know, my career or my needs may take precedent, or sometimes it's the kids, and then sometimes it's my wife. So whatever's best for the, for the family, and that's what we're all, all gonna unite behind. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT, and we bring you the best and brightest in the field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was curious and wanted to know what all the hype was about. I had heard it advertised on other podcasts, and I had had uh, known some other people who started drinking it. And I was like, you know, what's this all about? Now that I've been taking it for several months, I find that I look forward to taking it in the mornings. It's starting to replace my coffee, believe it or not. I take it on empty stomach and it just feels like I am, you know, complimenting the other healthy behaviors that I like to work into every day. Gopi, you want to tell our listeners, you know, what is this stuff? What is this AG1? Wow, it's uh, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. I don't know about half of what those are, but they are they they make me feel better, and um, they're uh, make me feel like I'm actually contributing to a, like you know making sure I have a whole all the nutrients that I need in my diet. Do you um, how do you like to mix yours? You know, right now I just do water, about 10 ounces, two ice cubes, two or three at most, and then put the powder in and just shake it up. I find that if I do too many ice cubes, it stays a little clumpy. But if I don't do enough ice cubes, it's not cold enough. Mm, gotta have what about that. you? Do you do it in water, juice, a smoothie? I like cold water, like about 12 ounces, you know, so on the on the um higher side and um, a couple of ice cubes of water and then I give it a real good shake like I'm like I'm shaking up a martini or something you know yeah. um, and then <laughs> at 7 a.m. <laughs> at 7 a.m. just like a chick, 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 chick. and um, and then I'm out the door and you know I feel like it's becoming like a, a necessity you know it's like a important part of my day. I also like that it contains one uh, less than one gram of sugar no GMOs no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. So I like yeah. it. How do they do like that? The companies. Huh? How do they do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, it's time for you, our listeners, to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, uh, nutritional supplement like AG1. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash backtable ENT. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash backtable ENT to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now back to the show. 
My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT. I'm here with a guest host today, Dr. Varun Varadharajan, a neurotologist practicing at Associates of Otolaryngology in Denver, Colorado. You may remember Varun from Backtable ENT episode 41, How to Find the Right Job. Welcome, Varun. Happy to have you back and on the host side this morning. Hi, thanks, Gopi. Um, it's awesome to be back. Um, I actually have the honor today to introduce our guest. Dr. William Collins is professor and chairman of the University of Florida Department of Otolaryngology, as well as the chief of pediatric otolaryngology. He completed his otolaryngology residency and his rhinology fellowship at the University of Miami. He then went on to complete a second fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology at the Children's National Medical Center in D.C. Dr. Collins is actually a close mentor of mine and was a residency program director at the University of Florida when I was a resident there. He has actually guided me throughout my journey as an ENT trainee and it's a huge honor to have him on the show as a guest. Today, we are here to talk about the dual physician household. So Dr. Collins, uh, welcome to the show and thank you again, Gopi, for having me back. Thank you, Varun, and uh, I appreciate the invitation, Gopi. <laughs> Should be fun. Yeah, I think the last time I got to, or the, actually when I met you was um, at the SPOG, the Southern Pediatric mm-hmm. Otolaryngology Meeting um, in Florida. I, th- I want to say, I thought it was 2015. I could be wrong, maybe 16. And what struck me was... Um, the medical students that you had mentored who ended up matching throughout the you know course of a five to six year period uh, at UT Southwestern, you knew them, their names, you knew their, you knew their personalities. Like we could just talk to the, about them. And I knew them because of residency, but you spend a lot more time when they're residents. I think the medical students, I was like, I remember, you know, then talking to Nate and Dr. D, Dimitri, and just saying, hey, Dr. Collins really knew you guys so well. Like, how do y'all do it there? It's obviously a great program. So. Yeah, we've, we've had some, been fortunate to have some really good med students and have sort of formed this pipeline to UT Southwestern for some reason. So I always yeah, like to, Patrick, to check up. Cleveland. Yes, Patrick Cleveland, <laughs> Dimitri Arnatakis. Yeah, uh, we got another yeah. one out there, Nate Breslin now. Yes, um, I haven't gotten to so. work with Nate yet because they come more when they're twos and he's he's going to be starting soon. But uh, yeah, so. Well, good. I always like to kind of follow up and check on them, make sure they're uh, <laughs> holding up their end of the bargain. So. Above and beyond, I think. <laughs> well, thank you both. I, I think, um, Dr. Collins, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself first and, and your practice? And then we can sort of dive into our topic here. Sure. Happy to. Um, I have been at the University of Florida now for going on 16 years. Uh, as you mentioned, I came by way of Washington, D.C., where I did my fellowship in pediatric ENT at Children's National and then was an attending for a couple of years up there. Uh, my wife and I are both native Floridians. So, we were recruited back to the University of Florida to build the division of pediatric otolaryngology there. During my time there, I've spent close to 10 years as program director. Uh, over the last nine years or so, got very involved in, in hospital operations, particularly in the OR side of things. And just recently, earlier this year, assumed the role of, of department chair. And then throughout all of that, have, have maintained a busy clinical practice in, in pediatric otolaryngology and then mixing in some adult sinus as well. Um, so that has, uh, that's kept us there. I've been married for 23 years to my wife, Shelly. Um, we met in medical school, um, sort of coincidentally, at a St. Patrick's Day party um, way back when. And we have uh, raised three boys in Gainesville. I have a 20-year-old named Robbie, a 16-year-old named Cooper, and a 14-year-old named Jackson. That's awesome. That's awesome. I remember the good old days when you were a program director. And I actually, as soon as we recorded our first podcast about finding the right job, 
Um, even during my job hunt, I would call Dr. Collins and sort of tell him about the options and get his opinion on the pros and the cons. And it would be an is- the same issue with my wife too, because she's looking for a physician job and we're th- that whole podcast, we don't have to go into the nuances of that. But then one thing that kept coming up is managing the job hunt with two physicians. And so talking more and more to Dr. Collins about this is sort of how it resulted in the idea of having him on to get his thoughts on this. And What's also interesting is that we're all in different, the three of us are in different phases of our career. Now, Dr. Collins is the chairman. He's he obviously has a lot of wisdom <laughs> and his kids are almost completely grown up. Um, I just got started and my daughter is just turned 18 months. Um, we are, my wife and I would be, we're going to be married for seven years. Actually, tomorrow is our wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Um, but Gopi, how, tell us about your, yeah. your family life. So, um, <laughs> So I'm a pediatric ENT. Uh, my husband, Aaron, is an interventional radiologist. And we also met at medical school, not at a St. Patty's Day party, although that would have been fun. <laughs> I think it was in one of our medical <laughs> ethics foundation classes. I remember sitting next to him. And uh, instead of listening to the lecture, I think we were talking in the back. Um, <laughs> um, classic ethics class. Classic, <laughs> classic. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, so we've been married, um, I don't even know, let's see, no, I do know. We got married in 2009, and we just celebrated 10 years in 19, so I guess we're coming up on um, 12, 13 years soon. Anyways, we have, uh, we have two kids, they're 8 and 10, uh, we've both been in practice now. We've been out of residency since 12, so we've been out for about 10 years, and um, our kids are 8 and 10, and uh you know, it's funny you mentioned, you know, applying for jobs. Um, I think it also comes up the challenge of when you have two physicians, uh, when you're applying for residency as well as fellowship. When my husband, so both of ours uh, were five-year residencies, but we did our, we staggered our fellowship. Uh, one, because we didn't want to match in two different places. We had our older child by then. And then two, um, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted uh, to do at that point just yet. Um, I, I was still trying to figure out between general pizza and rhinology. And so we had to kind of stagger it a little bit. Um, and so I've been out, I guess, in my own pediatric practice now eight years. When you guys were both, I guess we can sort of dive right into the topic, obviously having a dual physician household, there are a lot of considerations. There's obviously a lot of pros, there's a lot of benefits of having someone, have your partner your spouse being the very similar specialty or even um, area of medicine as you, but even just having someone who works in the medical field is beneficial because they understand, you know, how hard you work and they understand why you have so many student loans and they probably may may or may not have them on their own. But um, it all sort of starts when you're, you know, in med school. And if you did know your spouse, then um, add some more complication because then there's when you decide on a specialty who gets to pick who is a priority because if one is really competitive and the other one is not a competitive uh, specialty or if one is a competitive applicant and another one's not a competitive applicant those are difficult conversations to have um, especially if you're not married yet and you're trying to decide on uh, proposing and or if you've been together for many years it definitely changes the dynamic of the relationship and one question I have for you guys, or if you knew your spouse when you were in medical school, did you guys do a couples match or how did you make that decision? So when, when I was going through it, yeah, when I, when I went through the match, uh, ENT was an early match and my wife and I were two years apart in medical school. 
So we actually met after I had matched um, at a, as I mentioned, a St. Patrick's Day slash match party. Um, so I was a matched fourth year student, like golden boy, untouchable at that point in your, your med student, <laughs> med school career. So my path was already set and I had matched at my home program um, at the University of Miami. So in that sense, we didn't have to go through that, that stressful situation of a, of a couple's match. It did affect my wife's you know, choices in looking at residency um, because by that point we were you know, pretty serious and, and I think we were probably even engaged at that point when she was looking at, at residencies. So she, she didn't have a whole lot of options if we wanted to stay in the same town. And that was one of those things you know, that we make a, you know, a compromise or a sacrifice for the partner. You know, she could have gone anywhere in the country and, and chose to stay in Miami you know, to be together for our residency. For us, we decided to couples match. We were not engaged yet at that point, which was fine. Um, we So we couples matched and um, initially my husband applied into internal medicine. So gave a little bit of a, a broader, more options, I think, for him initially, as well as um, the, the only challenge, caveat was that that was going to be a five-year versus a three-year program. And so there would be some time, but uh, we kind of, you know, we didn't kind of start even thinking about that at that point. And then, so we did couples match. In terms of like where and how we ranked and stuff like that, I got lucky. I, you know, I think I had the, I don't know if the magic number is these days, but you try to make sure you rank at least 10 or, you know, what we tell 10 programs if you can, you know, and plus I think I had uh, one or two backup options in terms of um, not general surgery residencies. Sorry, I'm like losing my word here like a transitional internship, right? That one, I think I applied to two of those just as a backup too. So in, in cities, cities with multiple programs where um, my husband also had more options. And so when we matched, I felt like we got pretty lucky in terms of programs that we both uh, were excited about and, you know, a city that we both enjoyed. So we really, you know, kept larger cities in mind when we were yeah, looking at programs. So Varun, tell us about how you and your wife decided on your match plan when you were applying for residency. Yeah. So um, I actually didn't describe like you guys how we met and, and that whole story. Well, but um, <laughs> we actually met at a bar in Chicago before all the dating apps existed. <laughs> so I'm still, I guess I'm still in that generation. But uh, I was in medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin and she was at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And so one of my college roommates was in her med school class, so I would just go up and visit them. And um, so I just actually met her at a bar and then just kept talking to her. And that was first year of med school. And um, we started dating and fourth year of med school, I proposed. And then we got married intern year. But that whole time when we were dating, that was the sort of thing about, you know, yeah, I'm going to propose at some point. I'm going to propose at some point. But there's so much uncertainty with what specialty we're going to choose. And it's sort of by third year of med school, we sort of knew that, um, you know, we're going to stay together long term. But the whole idea with the couples match, we went back on back and forth on that for a long time. And with ENT being so competitive, my wife is an allergist now, uh, but with ENT being so competitive, I was just scared about matching in general. Um, and I had a good step one score, but otherwise I was, wasn't like a super stellar candidate. I mean, the only reason I came to University of Florida is because I jived with Dr. Collins probably. <laughs> But yeah, that's sort of our story. So we we decided not to couples match. But yeah, so we we decided not to couples match. Um, the it worked out for the best in the end. But we did have to do uh, a long distance relationship. My wife did a, a prelim year in a, in a different place than University of Florida, 
And Dr. Collins actually spoke with the internal medicine program director at the University of Florida at the time. I remember getting in touch with him was a huge ordeal. And so I would bug Dr. Collins every few months about that. Do you remember those good old days? <laughs> I, I remember them very well. It was one of my first experiences as a program director and kind of wheeling and dealing with another program. But it worked. It worked out. Yeah. But he, but he helped us, you know, live together again. And uh, then my wife, uh, we did our, she did her medicine residency at the University of Florida. And then for fellowship, she wanted to do allergy. And so there actually was not yet a program at the University of Florida. I actually, I don't know that there is. Um, so we just decided together to just get into the best possible program that you can get into and we'll just sort of deal with it. Um, so she went to National Jewish in Denver. Um, and then we lived, we were long distance again for two years. Uh, and then we sort of moved together again for my neurotology fellowship. Well, that's sort of our story. And it was, it's sort of full of, you know, living together or living apart, living together. And that's not something that I don't know that, 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 that I, unless you're both physicians or you're both in a career that where it can sort of put you anywhere in the country, not everyone's going to be able to be as accommodating or understanding. And so that's, that's one of the biggest challenges that, that we faced. And when we talk to other couples and they sort of will just ask, oh, how did you do it? And part of the issue is when you're so busy as a resident or a fellow, sometimes you aren't even thinking about it, right? You're just, you're just living every day to day and the days are long, but they, they say the years are short. And so that's sort of how we just got through it. Well, I think you make a, a really good point for him. I think that your program director being Dr. Collins here, you know, going to bat for you and really trying to help, you know, you guys be in the same place is very important and having mentors overall that kind of help you value your marriages, your family life is very important. Um, one of the most important thing, advice, piece of advice I got, I remember in residency was from our, uh, I, went, I was at Jefferson and it's funny, uh, you mentioned how when you were applying and what kind of candidate you were, I always joked that at Jeff, they just ranked the wrong Indian and, you know, they ended up with me, which is <laughs> lucky for me. I don't know about them, but lucky for me, either way, um, when I was a resident, now the chairman's uh, Dr. David Cognetti, but prior is Dr. Bill Keene for a long time. And um, I remember him telling me, you know, because Aaron and I were thinking about being apart for fellowship and this and that. And he's like, and at that point, we, you know, was, we were about to have our first kid. And uh, he said, you know, if you can, you know, make sure you keep your family together. Keep your, keep be, try to be in the same place. And that has stuck with me to this day, whether it's, you know, at that time when we were applying for fellowships to you know, jobs when we're trying to figure out, hey, what's our next step? Because, and that's what I try to tell, you know, our, our residents, if there are, you know, considerations, like I, I do think that my personal opinion is being in the same place, I think is really important um, at that point in your life because you're early 30s, late 20s, you're a young adult and, you know, these are adult decisions and we're so used to not, you know, with these matches, right? You're just kind of hoping to get in and this and that. At some point, though, you got to make some choices, <laughs> you know, when it comes to life and work and things like that. So kudos for having a good uh, program director and mentor. Yeah, I definitely got very lucky with that. And if you have a spouse where they're choosing a specialty that's not, they, they can sort of go wherever they want, um, then you're in a great position because then you can couples match and the sort of limiting reagent is your ENT match, <laughs> right? And but the same thing is if they're not in medicine, it also, if they're a lawyer, then they have to take the bar in another state or depending on whatever their career choice is, there may be situations where, yeah, you're not a dual physician household, but it's even more difficult <laughs> for, for those reasons. Absolutely. I, I remember us having those conversations, you know, about tr trying to get your wife um, to Gainesville and remembering back when my wife and I were going through those same discussions. Yeah. 
you know, we, we graduated yeah. residency the same time and she had an extra year of chief residency pediatrics. And so I had this year to kind of kick around and, you know, a gap year, so to speak, which I ended up doing a, a rhinology fellowship, which was great, but we had some serious, you know, conversations about being apart for a year and the pros and cons of that. So, you know, it was, it was helpful for me to be able to, to counsel and mentor you because my wife and I had had those same discussions and, you know, faced some of those same decisions. So what do you tell um, medical students or residents these days when they come to you, Dr. Collins? Everybody's in a unique, different situation, you know, and I can, I can tell them what worked for me. And, you know, my wife and I are both very ambitious people. But, you know, for us, I think one of the keys all along has been to, you know, to communicate and compromise, you know, and just be open with each other. And there are times when her career takes priority or precedence. And there are times when mine did, um, you know, like moving to the University of Florida, she moved down here and there really was no guarantee of a job, but it was worth it to us to come back closer to family. And then there are other times, you know, over the course of the years where both of us have had respective job offers at different places and, and you really got to balance it. And, and every couple is different, you know, and one thing I, I, you know, caution people is, you know, if you compromise, you know, you have to be honest with yourself because you don't want to put one partner's career on hold and they say, oh, it's fine. I understand. And then it creates a lifetime of resentment. So you really, that's where the communication part comes in and you have to be honest with each other. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. My parents are actually both physicians as well. So I was a kid who grew up in a dual physician household and they were in India, obviously, when they do their medical training. And my mom would, will still sometimes bring up to this day that, because uh, they're both anesthesiologists, but there she was an ophthalmologist and she actually, actually wanted to go into OB. But she said she obviously loved her career as an ophthalmologist there. And then she had to, obviously, with the former medical graduate coming here, it had to change that. But she'll still say sometimes, you know, like I could have been, you know, the the head of OB in some place or I could have been. <laughs> so the, those decisions that you don't forget about them uh, years later. And so even if you're the person who is not making the compromise, like you have to know, you have to imagine the sort of butterfly effect <laughs> of every decision that you make. But actually, Dr. Collins, you're, you're talking about the being no guarantee of a job. We went through that for my fellowship because, you know, neurotology at least is two years, but we were moving to Columbus, Ohio, and there really weren't any allergy jobs. And luckily, my wife ended up finding something, but only after we moved there. And so we, I was talking to Dr. Collins about that, too. I was you just call him to vent about things. And um, he sort of told me that, that that same experience. And I'm sure that's not unique to us at all. And I've I've known like I had a neck fellow at some point at OSU. His wife, she just didn't work for that year. She they couldn't find any positions. And it just depends on where your fellowship is, the job market at the time. And yeah, it, it's, it's a, it can be a very difficult situation. So Aaron and I, so Aaron ended up switching to radiology. I think he preferred the reading room to rounding. But anyways, and he went, uh, did his fellowship. We staggered it, right? Um, and so we graduated, we finished residency at the same time. He did his IR fellowship in Nashville at Vanderbilt. And I didn't have a job when we moved. And I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, I've done the bit of, you know, going at, you know, a thousand miles an hour for five years of residency. And oh my God, like, what are we doing? And um, I, you know, I ended up that sort of year before um, I started reaching out to different practices, but 
I would say, hey, we're only going to be here for you because at that point I had knew I was going to do a paid fellowship right after, but I, I knew I was just going to be there for a year. And most places hesitated, right? Like, why would you hire somebody for a year? And um, But I'm so thankful I made those calls because um, one of the practices, Dr. Mark Williams, who's actually on Black Table at for a uh, voice uh, medicine and ministry podcast. Anyways, he's so, he's so kind to me. He called me that fall because he needed somebody to see patients in clinic. And um, for me, it was a, I had a job and okay, I, you know, we have some money this year <laughs> and like, you know, I get to see patients and still feel like, okay. And I learned so much. It was, it was actually a great um, experience, but you're right. It's, there may be a time of uncertainty and it's not necessarily your spouse because you're the ENT. It may be the flip side and you may be the otolaryngologist in that position and it's okay. It, it works out and there's opportunity there. You know, as long as I think, like you said, you have to be very open and honest. And the honest part was, is that I wasn't ready to decide what I wanted to do when it was time to apply for fellowship. And I had to be okay with that. I had to get real comfortable with that. And it was a little uncomfortable. uh, But then this opportunity came up and it was kind of the timing was right. I was able to do it part time. I got to spend some time with my baby, pass my boards, and then see what it was like in a, you know, adult general solo practice in Nashville. Like it was actually great. And so, but yeah, that uncertainty is, can be difficult. I was going to ask you guys about that. Is you have, would you already have kids at this point? Uh, Either, so Gopi, it sounds like you already, it was at the end of residency then you, um, you you had a kid. Yeah. So my older one was about six months at the time when we finished residency. Well, that adds a whole nother level of stress. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to the situation because then you can't be oh that's okay we'll do long distance or for however many year, yeah. years we definitely put off our family plan for this whole entire reason because we because we was, let's just get our fellowships let's get all that out of the way before we even start trying dr collins what about you did you have kids at that point uh we did not um we we were um, fortunate enough to be able to you know plan and have our first child at the end of my chief resident year and a couple of big milestones, you know, when you, when you, the, the dink, you know, household, the double income, no kids. I mean, we were both residents just grinding away. I mean, it was, it was easy, you know, uh, there was really no conflicts. Um, we worked long hours, but really were totally dedicated to each other and to work. Um, we waited until I had no longer had to take in-house call and we got a dog. That was kind of one of the big first milestones. And then um, we waited to have our first child in my last year of residency. And she, you know, for for an ENT, we waited until I didn't have, I was done with head and neck, (laughs) my last head and neck rotation as a chief resident. And for my wife, it was when she had sort of front loaded her schedule her last year with in-house call. So we we waited until the end um, so we wouldn't have to to juggle, you know, in-house call and a, a baby at home and and those kind of uh, challenges and conflicts. Yeah, should we talk about kids then <laughs> next? Because I mean, with two physicians and a demanding job and figuring out childcare, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, there, you know, I, I think um, <laughs> when to have a kid, I mean, that's a whole, for all fertility, all that stuff, it's a whole, another maybe 10 podcasts. I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, my mom, she did, she did PM&R for 40 years in Louisiana. I was also a product. I grew up in a household of two physicians, did their medical education in India and came over in the early uh, 70s and actually 1970. 
And she always told me, you know, there's never a good time to have a baby. And it, you know, you just, it, you know, it happens when you're ready is kind of what she told me. Right. And again, fertility, all that stuff's a whole different conversation. But um, oh, yeah. in terms of, you know, when and sort of how, um, especially when there are other uh, women residents or medical students, you know, they'll ask, which they should, like, we, you finally have people that you can ask these questions to and that you see. And I, I do think that that's helpful. I used to be like, oh, I don't need to, whatever, I don't need to see that. But no, it, it does helpful. It's very helpful when you see other people, families, couples uh, going through it. But um, so, I, you know, I think for <laughs> realistically, I think internship and primary call is probably really hard to have a child, people do it. Um, and, you know, I think that as long as you, you guys, you know, you and your spouse and, you know, I think family support is always helpful. Um, affording childcare at that time can be difficult. Your hours are a little bit crazier and more unpredictable. And so those are definitely harder challenges that come along with it. I think for me, so I was pregnant during the first six months of like end of fourth year, first six months of my chief year. I think what mentally helped me out is I saw one of my residents who she was a year older than me go through her she had her baby I think when she was a fourth year having seen her kind of go through and how she did it uh Leela Lavasani she's out and I think in Florida still um made me realize hey this is something that's doable again if you see it you see somebody else doing it it makes you feel like okay I can do this too you know my program was very supportive they, you know, I took front loaded all my like, at that point I was taking, it was backup call. Fortunately, uh, we had enough people to where once you were a PGY5, those, you know, sec, you weren't the first call at that point anymore. I had co-residents that were uh, team players. I front loaded all my calls up front so that after I had the baby, it wouldn't be as bad. But, you know, it was head and neck chief after, when my baby was three months and you do it. I mean, you just figure it out because A, you have to and B, this is, it's not like there's a golden time or a golden period once you're done with residency, right? This is life. You are, you're still a practicing physician and you still have childcare needs and baby needs, whether it's, you know, waking up because they woke up at night to, hey, taking them to, you know, whatever sports game or being present at the recital to, you know, maybe deciding if you're going to decorate the classroom because the other moms are decorating the classroom at the party, right? So, those oh, things God. are going to yeah. keep happening. And um, I think my mom's right. There probably isn't ever a, a good time. And, you know, so, but I, f I feel like it's made me a better, it made me a better doctor. Like, I, I feel like I, it made, it's made me a better person. I like myself more with my kids. They keep me in line. They keep me in check. They keep it real. Like, they keep the, they keep it very down to earth um, and help me prioritize. So, I, you know. Dr. Collins, I remember you were, I remember you telling me a story once where, we were, I don't know, somewhere in Miami where you would remember seeing two physicians handing a child off in the hospital hallway mm -hmm. for childcare. Yeah. Yeah. I actually <laughs> just so saw that finding about a week ago in the parking garage here at the University of Florida. Um, and it, and it sort of brought back some memories. They were obviously two residents and, you know, making the handoff in the morning. And, you know, I, I think the degree of complexity of a two physician household, it's at that sort of intersection between where you are in your your parenting career and where you are in your professional career. You know, younger kids, I mean, they need obviously a lot more care and, and attention. And and as you get further along in your career, you, you have a little more control over your hours. Um, you know, as a resident, you have almost no control. Um, and for, for my wife and I, the hardest part, now we look back on it and kind of laugh and shake our heads. But 
really for us, the hardest part was when I was in DC as a fellow and I had no control over my schedule. She had just started a very demanding private practice pediatrics job that had, you know, a lot of uh, nursery rounding responsibilities and full days of clinic. And we had no family in the area and it was incredibly challenging. You know, we really didn't have a support system up there, had a young child. I mean, he was a year and a half, you know, two years old at the time. And it was really, really difficult. Again, because we had a young child and, and very little control over our schedule. You know, and I remember her first day of her private practice job, I had already left to go to the hospital early and she called, she called me and her son had a fever. And it was kind of like, well, do you call in sick on your first day of your new job or do I call in sick, you know, in my first month of my fellowship? And, and I had to call my chairman at the time and call in sick, you know, as a new fellow. So that, that kind of goes back to oh, the, man. you know, the, the compromise part of things. Yeah, we are. So we sort of almost went through that here. So with our daughter, who's 18 months, it's. We, we, we like went through, we've been through multiple nannies now and we tried, we tried daycare for a little bit during the whole COVID thing. The daycares kept closing and they kept limiting the amount of students that are allowed in the daycares. But our nanny got sick. Uh, she actually ended up getting like a kidney stone. And so we were a two week period where we were, we, she helped us find one of her friends to cover, but we wouldn't know till the night before if we had childcare for the next day. And my wife and I were both in the first year, really first six months of our new job. And there was a two week period where we were like, all right, well, tomorrow I have this many patients and you have this many patients. So how many lives are we going to affect if whichever, which one of us cancels it? And if I have OR, these people have been waiting how long and what is their, how bad is their diagnosis that needs is some sort of triaging who's going to cancel whose clinic. And it was, it was brutal. And then that's why we're like, if we eventually found a nanny and we pay her more than I get made as a resident, we're like, let's just, just please just show up to work <laughs> so we can go to work. Yeah. yeah that, that's kind of what we settled on was, was finding good childcare and treating them well, because it was just invaluable. We're lucky in a, in a college town, there's a lot of, you know, young women that are students or recent graduates that We've been very lucky to find a couple. We, we always kind of joke they're the daughters we never had because we have three boys. And, you know, they've gone on and become nurses and lawyers and entrepreneurs and different things. So, but we, we found good people and, and invested in them. And we found that because we didn't have family that lived in town, that comparing like a daycare to a, a nanny or sitter or something like that, the nanny was preferable because it, it, part of the deal when we hired him was like, if you're sick, What's your backup plan? Because we we can't call in sick um, or really on very rare occasions. So we've had a few that were not so good, um, but but by and large, we've been extremely lucky with getting good child care and, and really treating, treating them like family because you're trusting Absolutely. them with your your most precious thing in your life, which is your kids. Oh. Absolutely. I think that was another yeah. piece of advice my mom gave me was, hey, once you have found your nanny, that's your family. Whatever they want, treat them well because you can't function. Your household will not function without them. And they're right. That's your main piece. You you can be sick. That's fine. As long as the nanny isn't sick, <laughs> the house, everything will go move on, move forward. But it's 100% true. Even finding a daycare that's open early enough that you can drop your child off or children and then go to work on time. Like if you were going to go around in the morning and then you're going to drop your child off at daycare, 
some of them don't open until like eight or seven, right? And that's that's way that's you're already at work for an hour, especially if you're like a resident or you're early in your career or you have an OR day. It's that's another issue is finding you know a good daycare. And if you're in a big city, there's a wait list sometimes for years to even get into that. And so even though a nanny, a lot of people you know it, it will complain that it's very expensive, but they're worth their weight in gold if you can make it work financially. That was one of the things that we had to come to terms with, and it's like, well, we'll we'll pay for it, and we'll treat her really, really well, and just uh, pray that she comes to work. <laughs> yeah, you know, and another decision is what you know if you do hire a, a nanny or sitter, what what are they going to do? You know, and we always wanted to do the little things with our kids. You know, and sometimes at the end of a day, like you know, giving them a bath, oh, it just seems tedious. Just just bathe yourself and let's get to bed, and so I can you know go sign my <laughs> epic charts or something like that, yeah. but. But really, some of those little things really matter to kids. So, you know, we wanted somebody that could watch them during the day, pick them up from school, you know, get them to practice. And we would pick them up from practice, things like that. But, but you know, for, for other folks, you know, having somebody do the grocery shopping and the laundry and, you know, prepare dinner, you know, you know time is money. And yeah. that may be worth it, again, just depending on your, your individual circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's one of those where, Time is money. There's limited things that you can do and be at, but pick the stuff that where your kid physically can see you present. <laughs> like don't volunteer at the school where your kid's never going to see you volunteering at that activity. Make sure they see you. Oh, that's right? good advice. <laughs> like even if it's that two seconds at their whatever show, you give them a hug at the end and you got to go and somebody else has got to take them home. They've at least seen you. That is, another mom had given me that advice and I was like, okay. And then pick the stuff you like. You know, like, you know, if you don't enjoy, you know, for me, decorating the classroom for the party, I don't volunteer for that. <laughs> but I do enjoy, you know, going to the, you know, soccer game or, you know, um, making sure I'm home for dinner or, you know, like, or putting you to, you know, putting you to sleep because that's when we talk or, you know, those few mornings I can take you to school, those, those little things and that, those consistent, consistently little things are, I think, are important as well. It's funny you mentioned the ride to school because we have our last day of school next week. And my youngest, this is the last three days that we will drive him to school because next next year he'll be driving with his brother. And for years we dreamed of this day. (laughs) (laughs) And now my wife and I are like, wow, like we miss those little conversations. They talk. What's going on? You just listen. And they just, yeah, 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 da, 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 da. You know, they get going a mile a minute. And I mean, that's, that's quality time. You know, sometimes you're driving, you know, faster than you should, trying to get to the bus stop to get to, you know, get to the OR on time so you don't get dinged for a late start or something. Oh, but but it's those little those little moments um, that really make an impact. Well, that's good advice. You know, as a surgeon, I just kind of came into it with the assumption I would not be able to be that involved in my kid's life. It sounds crazy. I was the first one in my family to, to go into medicine. So I just assumed when I picked a surgical career, you know, I, I would catch fleeting glimpses of little league games and things like that. And with my oldest, I remember he was about eight or nine and he tried out for a baseball team. And it was about two weeks went by. We hadn't heard about the roster. And my wife called the league director and, and he's like, we don't have a coach. There's not going to be a team. And my wife says, oh, my husband played baseball in high school. He can coach. And when she told me that, I was like, what are you, I don't have time. I'm a surgeon. 
And I will tell you, it was one of the greatest things I've ever done with my boys. It was just, you know, and, and all three of them have played baseball and they're big into sports. And, and to be able to share that with them when they're young was really, really impactful. And, and for a while around, around our town of Gainesville here, I was more frequently referred to as coach than doctor, the number of kids that, that I coach. So um, you can make the time, you, not when you're a resident, not when you're a fellow, but if it really is important, you can find the time to do those things that, that you like to do and your kid likes you to do. And as they get older, they don't want dad in the dugout and they want real coaches and things like that. But, <laughs> um, but you can find ways to make the time as you get farther along in your career. That's awesome. Gopi, how are you able to decorate the classroom and oh, I make don't. yourself present? I don't in those decorate ways. the classroom. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I realize that I don't okay. really have fun decorating the classroom. So I, I don't get to do those. I don't, I choose not to do those things as much. I used to have a lot of, especially when my kids, I don't know, turn four and five and six. I think that's when I started to have more of the, the guilt, if you will, of, you know, not always, you know, knowing what was going on. And, at first, I was like, "Oh, it's because, like you said, I, I'm I've an ENT, I'm busy, and it's not a it's not an excuse for, on not doing other things in your life, right?" Um, and so, then I just had to kind of realize, okay, there are things that I like to do, and there are things that I don't like to do, and just figure out what you like, like, and get over all the other crap that comes along with it. And it, it's you know taken me some a little bit, and really for my also my kids to kind of you know challenged me a little bit, like in the sense of not why aren't you here, but I can tell they like me when I'm doing something with them that I like too. They don't like me when I'm doing something with them that I feel like I have to do. They can read it. Like, I don't know. I have a hard time hiding that stuff. And so <laughs> they can, they can tell. And so for us, I, I think, um, you know, what it's, you know, being consistent for me with like, you know, bedtime and like reading together a little bit every night. I enjoy that. That's when we kind of snuggle and cuddle and people are like, oh my God, you still lay with your kids. Yeah, they're eight and 10. I still get in the bed with them. I don't care. Like I used to feel so weird about, oh, you know, making sure somebody was once like, well, you know, how a child sleeps is a reflection of their parenting. And I was like, that's because your wife raised all your kids. Anyways, that's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) I don't know if that part's going to be edited, but anyways, I, but that's the time I have with my kids and I enjoy it. And that's when they snuggle and that's when we talk or we might read a book or they might, you know, ask me about what's going on with something because, you know, they heard it in the classroom, right? Like that. So to me, those are the sort of the things that, that I've enjoyed and kind of try to be consistent for. I, like listening, like if my kids are, you know, playing piano, some, I don't really play. It took a little bit recently, but, you know, if there's something we can kind of play together just so that they have fun doing it. But I am still learning, I think, in, about parenting and what I enjoy about it. So I'm not just caught up in all the to do's and shoulds because that same set of expectations, whether it's your professional career or your, you know, how you should be, you know, as a parent or a mom, you know, whatever comes. And so you kind of have to cut all the fat out and figure out what you like, you know, and just, and, and so to me, that's the, the consistent daily challenge. So I don't know. What about you, Varun? Your daughter's still pretty young, but there's still, I'm sure, things that, that you enjoy. What you said earlier about bath time for an 18 month old is huge. And like when I come home, my wife actually has yelled at me multiple times because I come home and then that's when I do, I immediately like, all right, I'm home time to make all the phone calls, time to call the referring docs and tell them what I saw today, time to sign the op notes that are several days behind or the clinic notes so my clinic people can 
put in the charges before the month ends or all these things you have to do. My wife's like, she knows when you're on your phone. (laughs) She's like, she can see you walking around. She's looking at you and you're like, oh God, you're right. She's like, she's only awake for another hour. (laughs) And so I'm like, "This, this is true. When I get home, just forget everything. Even when I'm on call, like the phone will make the noise if I need to touch it. And I just completely dedicate the first half an hour at least to her and then we fix her dinner and then we, uh, the bad time is huge and I think now bad time has sort of become my thing a little bit and um, then my wife is sort of making her dinner and that's sort of the quality time that I have with my daughter but that was really only a month ago that she pointed that out where I'm coming home and I'm reflexively starting to make phone calls, sending texts to my audiologist about things and and there's no need for any of that. No one else is looking at their phone after 5 p.m. You know, it's like these other people, they don't care. Right. And so I I need to just uh, adopt that mindset. And the same thing is true for sending emails and residency. You're used to sending emails and receiving emails at 8, 9 p.m. or, you know, on a weekend. And now it's like I send an email. It's like I didn't realize I could use an automatic reply now (laughs) when I'm I'm out of town or or on all those things We're on where we were on a vacation. And I'm sending emails off and my office staff is like, aren't you supposed to be spending time with your daughter and your wife? Why are you replying to this email now? I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm not a, a good staff. <laughs> that's good office. Staff. Yeah. But that's, that's like you said, and that, that transition for me was, was hard. And it was like harder than it was for my wife. Cause she was like, oh yeah, when I'm come home. I'm done. I'm not doing anything. And that's one of the benefits of, you know, not doing surgery where maybe, you know, maybe that's not exactly a specialty specific thing at all. But it's like Dr. Collins said, you, I went in with the mindset was if you're a surgeon, you're always, you keep that identity 24 seven. And, um, that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I still have to actively put my phone in the drawer. Like I have a hard time still, like, you know, especially after an OR day, cause there's, there's just stuff that continues to linger that responsibility. It just lingers. And you know, oh, is did they get the right script or, oh, they're just still in you or whatever it is. There's still something, right? Oh, yeah. And so I still, I st- struggle with it. And I know my kids are just like, why are you always? Like they've made comments and like, they it's not all the time, but they do. And I'm just like, oh, I know. And then I just, okay, let me send this one last one. And I just, I'm like, okay, just, you gotta, it's so hard to just put it in the drawer, you know, or just nothing's going to happen. Everything's going to be okay. So your your kids are old enough to call you out then? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Eight and ten, they call me out on everything these days. I feel like they just know. <laughs> they just they keep me in check. That's awesome. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Since I had my son, paying down my med school debt has become my top priority. I remember holding him in my arms for the first time, looking into his beautiful little face and just wanting the best future for him. With the Laurel Road Student Loan Cashback Card, my regular purchases earn me 2% cashback when I use it to pay down my student loans, which helps me reach my goals faster and plan for my family's future. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Now, back to the show. I have a separate question of advice for you guys. Yeah, you've been, obviously, with much more experience in this than I have. How, how do you, especially with kids, how do you find the time to maintain your own interpersonal relationship with your spouse Cause, and even your own hobbies? You're like, right, because you're, you're going 110% at work, and then you come home, and then you deal with the kids, and then you go back to catching up with stuff at work. This all started before work and it all started before you had kids and you had a relationship before that that's probably very different than now. The whole, all the dynamics have changed. You're both in your careers, you have, you have kids and how do you sort of maintain that 
interpersonal relationship and have that sort of those more intimate discussions with each other the way it used to be. What what are hobbies? What do you mean by hobbies? <laughs> That's what I have written on my sheet. I have like hobbies with a question mark. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting. I I had a rule when I was younger, and my wife teases me about the kind of girls I used to try to date. But like, I never dated anybody else in medical school. I wanted nobody, no nurses. I didn't want to date anybody in medicine. And you know, we kind of met and I broke all my rules and, you know, ended up marrying a physician. And, you know, as I guess it's probably true with, with both of you, you know, when you get home at night, when you finally get the kids to bed, you know, you end up talking a lot about work and in retrospect could not have been luckier. You know, my, my wife is a rock star. I mean, she really is. And, you know, she, she moved to Gainesville and there was no job guaranteed. And now she's the Dean of Student Affairs and the Associate CMO of the Children's Hospital. And, and everything. So, you know, we, she's one of my best sounding boards, confidants. I mean, we bounce ideas off of each other. So although we do talk a lot about work, we make each other better in that sense, you know, and, and our different perspectives. I mean, you know, just as an example, we are redoing our comp plan um, at the University of Florida as places tend to do every few years. And you know, I came home complaining about it and this and that. And she's like, well, have you talked to any other chairs at other ENT departments? I'm like, well, oh, you know, no. So I did. <laughs> and I reached out to some people and it was a huge, huge benefit to talk to some other people, you know, and that comes from somebody who understands what we do. So we do enjoy the, the sort of shop talk and, and we can relate to each other, but we try to be very intentional about kind of just putting up a wall around ourselves every now and then. And, you know, for us, we, we live on five acres outside of Gainesville and we have a fire pit and a field. And, you know, there are nights we go sit by the fire pit, just her and I, and listen to music and talk, you know, and inevitably talk means we talk about work and the boys and their futures and our futures. And, you know, sometimes we, it sounds very redneck, but we pull my pickup truck out in the field and, just sit under the stars and talk and, but that's what we have to do. You know, we have to kind of put that wall around ourselves and isolate ourselves from, from all the distractions to, to maintain that, that like connection. That sounds like a movie, like a high school movie set. That doesn't sound <laughs> redneck. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I should move back to Gainesville. <laughs> <laughs> like, do we, like Aaron's got a truck. I'm like, we need to find the field now. Okay. <laughs> we drive out to Plano or somewhere. Go find a field. Let's go. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. So I I think um, when the our kids were especially like one and three, two and four, you know, three and five, zero and two, that was a race. Um, it's a survival mode. I think a little bit more than it is now. Um, <laughs> it's still survival mode now, but it was a little bit more because uh, of sleep and um, there was always something. It was much harder to find time for yourself. And so I think because that time was so busy, I think we really had to, and you, you, like you said, you have, to, you can't lose your connection with each other. Like it, you have to still, and it, nothing's ever going to be like it, the way it used to be. <laughs> I mean, we're both middle-aged and like, I think we're beyond 40 and free. That's what I, what we call it. I call us now, but I'm, it's still having to, you know, intentionally kind of, like you said, make uh, that little wall for a second. And whether it's initially scheduling, you know, the date night, you know, but you got to do it, put it on the books and get the babysitter and 
you still got to do it and make an effort for those things. Um, my husband has always been really good with, you know, our anniversary and birthdays and making things special. I really have to uh, give him some credit for that because he's, he's an amazing husband and father. And of course, he's going to hear this. I would never like to tell him these things to his face. But anyways, but it's that mm-hmm. sort of those intentional. And then I think we do end up talking a little bit about work and patience because we understand uh, like you could, there is a little sense of being able to kind of empathize or understand or provide that perspective or provide that advice of, hey, you should call some other folks about this, you know, or, and, and so that that's good. And we, and we try to still find things that we have fun doing together, whether it's with the kids and still trying to do some things, just the two of us without the kids and being okay that, hey, we didn't take the kids. We went to New Orleans a couple of weekends ago and guess what? It was the bomb. You know, like there's stuff that you still have to kind of <laughs> intentionally think about and plan. I don't know. What about you guys? No, that's where we're doing exactly what you're describing. We're like, all right, once a month, we just need to have a date night and we'll just ask a babysitter. And we ask them way in advance. So that way we know what's going to happen. <laughs> but yeah. but it's, it's like you said, I mean, I, I hope it gets easier and the hobbies are slowly dying. Um, like in Gainesville, in Ohio, I would play guitar gigs like almost every month. Like in, in Gainesville, it was, it was going hard, especially when we were long distance. <laughs> I was, I'd be, We'd have a show every month and, you know, Dr. Collins, we remember the whole squad would come out and in Ohio, you know, it was a handful of times. And now it's like I played one gig and now if I book another extracurricular event or activity, it's like, oh, so you want to do a podcast and you want to <laughs> keep playing gigs and like, who's going to watch the, who's going to watch the child? And it, it, it's, uh, they're slowly dying. And so, <laughs> and so I'm glad that uh, you just come to terms with that, I guess. <laughs> the hobby. So, no, it's funny you say that. My husband um, played hockey in high school, okay? So he th- he decides that when we move to Dallas, he's going to find, like, a men's league, okay? And so these games are on, like, the weekend evenings, like, Sunday night at, like, you know, you know 8 p.m. And he's got to get there an hour ahead, and it's, like, an hour away. I'm like, I got full OR on Monday. The kids are, like, two and four. And I'm just sitting here, like, so like, ah, I could not believe this. You know? <laughs> like, I just can't believe it. What are you doing? And so eventually, I mean, he played a couple of seasons and, you know, because I, I was like, okay, I know he's got to like have fun, but I think he could feel the resentment. I'm sure you can, I, I guess maybe because you can hear my voice still, but um, and now he like, you know, might play a pickup game uh, every once in a while. Or now that the kids are older, everybody's got rollerblades and they might like hit the puck around on around the block or I, I don't know, but. I guess there are different permutations of the hobbies that you once had um, that eventually can still kind of be a part of your life that maybe just a little different. But man, the hockey on the weekends. Woo. You know, Vern, I think that's a really important question you asked because I think, you know, in a two physician household, you know, you're talking about two professionals and, you know, kids when they're younger, they require constant attention. You know, I mean, constant. When my wife and I go on vacation and we see families hauling car seats and strollers and we're like, thank God, like we're past that stage. But, you know, the the easiest thing to just take for granted is that relationship with your partner because, you know, they're another physician and they can be sort of self-sufficient, but, you know, the kids can't bathe themselves and they can't get themselves ready for bed and they can't get themselves to school and things like that. So it gets easier as they get a little bit older to carve out time for yourself. I will say as as we've gotten older now, it's a little bit more difficult because our kids stay up later than we do. And my wife and I are ready for bed at like 9 p.m. You know, and our kids will stay up watching movies or what have you until 11. But but it is really important and you, and you have to be 
I don't necessarily like this word, but you, you really do have to be intentional um, about carving out that time and maintaining that connection because it can be very easily, you, you take it for granted and, and all of a sudden we've known people all of a sudden, you know, five or 10 years later, they look at each other in the kitchen and are like, who are you? You're a totally different person. Well, and it's also, who am I? Like if it's so easy to not know what you enjoy anymore, what you like, or, you know, you get to a point for me, it was like, I used to love going shopping or wearing jewelry, whatever, something so small, but I used to love it. And now I'm like at the store and I'm like, what do I even enjoy? What do I like to buy? I mean, something as simple as that. So I, I do think that investing time in yourself and keeping up the things that you do love to do is good. It, at the end of the day, will benefit you, which and how you feel as well as your relationship, whether it's with your daughter, your spouse, your family, your patients. So that's important. And at the end of, at the other end of the day, if there's something that your spouse, partner, you know, child, family member loves, you got to support it a little bit. You know, it's just part of it. But, you know, we talked about the two physician specific. Um, how do you think it's, is it any different than, you know, two working households like where both parents work? You know, I think there are, there are similarities and there are differences. You know, I think any time both parents are working, you know, there's juggling the work-life balance, you know, the, the divide and conquer mentality, you know, where, you know, one partner may deal with the yard and the contractor and the other one deals with the cooking and the groceries and, you know, things like that. So I, I do think there are probably a lot of similarities. I think one of the differences in, in medicine, you know, is, I mean, it's really a, we sometimes forget it in the daily grind, but it's an unbelievable privilege you know, to, to operate on people and to take part in some of these enormous events in their life. And, you know, sometimes you, you have to step back and, you know, there are times when I'm a, a bad dad because I need to be a good doctor that day, you know, and there are other yeah. times where I'm a really good dad, but maybe I wasn't the best doctor that day. And I was rushing out of, you know, clinic to get to that, that game or something like that. But I think the the gravity of what we do in medicine changes it a little bit. You know, I, I, I do think, you know, the, that, you know, the eternal, you know, push for more RVUs and the financial pressures, the corporatization of medicine is different nowadays than it used to be. And, you know, and that, that certainly puts some pressure on things, but so, you know, and that, I think where that impacts our daily lives is it means, you know, eight to five is taken up by revenue generating activities, clinic, OR, like, I mean, our days are booked. And any of those ancillary things, you know, meeting with the residents, giving lectures happens at 7 a.m. or 6 p.m., you right. know, after hours, which then encroaches on on family time. And that that has over the years been a difficult thing to juggle, you know, between my wife and I's schedules. I mean, I can remember days we'd both get up early and kind of be in the bathroom brushing our teeth early. And she would look at me. She's like, do you have an early meeting? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, do you have an early meeting? Yes. And... Well, who's yours with? You know, I'm like, well, mine's with the residents and hers is with the dean. So she wins. And, <laughs> you know, and I have to text the residents, say I won't be there that morning. So, but medicine, I, I, I truly think it's different. And there are times when, you know, that job and those duties take priority. Um, and I yeah. can, I can, I can also give a, you know, a good example. Varun, you probably remember our Thanksgiving day tracheal resection or transection, I should say, where, we had a kid a few years back. Um, I think you were a junior resident, Varun, if I'm not mistaken. I wasn't on call, 
but like a two-year-old kid had a clothesline injury riding an ATV and had a complete tracheal transection. And, and I wasn't on call, but I came in to do it. And, you know, my whole family was there and my kids, you know, were like, where's dad, dad going? Yeah. But the gravity of what we do, sometimes that takes, that takes precedence. And, and, you know, my, my kids understand that. I was going to say your kids understand that. So even when sometimes, you know, you feel like you're not being the good parent because you have to leave something, your kids see your see how you work and what you do, and they notice everything. They see how it, the decisions that you make affect you and how your, you know, outcome, patient outcomes and patient care, what kind of toll it can take. And I, I feel like for the most part, most of the time, my kids get it, you know, like they've never, you know, every, yeah, they might give me a little bit, like the classroom decorating example might come up here and there. However, they get it, you know, and it's something important. And so you're right. I think that the gravity of which is a whole different, affects the whole family sometimes, right? And, you know, in terms like my 16-year-old son can understand, like he's a, a high school baseball player and parents are not allowed in the dugout. Parents are not allowed on the field. But with my wife and I both being physicians, you know, if a kid gets hurt, they look to us, you know, and it's sort of, if it's yeah. from the clavicle up, it's my problem. Or if there's blood, it's my problem. If it's orthopedics, it's my wife, but we are not infrequently asked to run out on the field, you know, and, and yeah. I think that's something that my 16 year old sees and he's like, you know, Hey, mom and dad, you know, they do have important jobs if they're asking them to come out of the crowd and, you know, check out, check out my teammates when they get hurt. All right. So I want to hear what your comment is for about the Thanksgiving tracheal transection. It was me, you and Mike Baskin. I remember it very vividly. And actually we still have the selfie from that day. Mm -hmm. With <laughs> it was a Thanksgiving we'll we'll never forget, but uh, I, I'm sure there's going to be many more like that. And at this point, like, luckily your kids are old enough that they understand. They're probably thinking about what careers they want to pursue also, and they'll see that, and that may even influence their <laughs> decision and what what they want to be when they grow up. I actually have a, a sort of another dis uh, question for you guys. If you ever encounter this scenario, not even related to family, but you know, two physicians in one city or in one town, if one of them doesn't like their job, what happens next if they want to change their job? Because there's a non-compete clause with every contract. And a part of the issue, part of even getting to this point is, like you said, maintaining the interpersonal connection, checking in with them to say, hey, do you like your job? Is, we just moved somewhere. Like, you know, how are things going? Do you see this as a long-term gig? And But if someone wants to change their job, what, what are the implications of that? And does you both have to uproot something. If one person loves their job, you have you may have to uproot and completely move to a different city. And in, in Florida, have you ever, Dr. Collins, have you ever seen that situation or Gopi even for, for you? Yeah. You know, my wife and I always say like we're a package deal. So if, if something's not working out for her and it's really, uh, you know, just an untenable or intolerable situation, then we're both willing to move. And, you know, there's no, there's no formula. There's no you know, algorithm, it's just kind of what is best for our entire family. And, you know, I, you could, you would have to consult a lawyer and how enforceable non-competes are and things like that. But when we have looked at various jobs, I mean, I, I had a, a job I looked at a few years ago that professionally I could have made work um, on a personal level. It would have been an amazing place um, to live. But professionally for my wife, it just, it was, it was really a step down. 
she's had some jobs that professionally would have been fantastic. And, you know, for me would have been, you know, kind of lateral moves. So I think if, as you get farther along in your career, it's harder to move. You know, your kids are entrenched in school. I mean, moving kids in middle school or high school is, is a much bigger deal than changing, you know, preschools. But again, you, you have to really communicate honestly and, and be willing to compromise and, and what's best for the family overall in the big picture. Because especially as you get farther along, you know, like with my wife and I's respective positions, you know, it would be nearly impossible if we were to ever move somewhere to both of us, you know, move up the, up the ladder, so to speak. So if it's a really good opportunity for one or the other, um, then the other partner has to be willing to, you know, to make it work. Yeah, I think, you know, we kind of had a, for me and Erin, we, uh, there was a point, uh, I want to say about five years ago or more, where, you know, he made some changes with his job and kind of how he wanted to do things and, you know, did look at, you know, a position in a different city and things like that. And I remember thinking, oh my God, oh my God, but I really like what I'm, where I'm at and da, da, da. In my mind, I wasn't quite ready, but and it kind of, we got lucky because I don't, that opportunity didn't quite, what it wasn't what it was kind of made out to be. But what I think what I learned is, um, one is having the two incomes gives you some flexibility so that if there is a transition for one person, you know, you're financially stable enough to be okay with letting that person, you know, figure out and find the right job and have that time to do that or build what they want to build. And I think that was a big learning point for us that, we're, we're very lucky in that in that sense. And I, I think you're right. I think in terms of social support, family, schools, and overall sort of where you are as you get further along, there's a lot of other factors that play a role in whether the, quote, job is an amazing dream job or not, um, because that doesn't that's only one part of your life now, right? It's just one piece of the puzzle. And it's all got to kind of fit together somehow, it, you know, and keep moving forward. But I think it gives you some flexibility, though, because you do have two incomes. You do have a source of health insurance and, you know, retirement, all that kind of stuff, yeah. which which it really it's a it's a it's a privilege sometimes. And uh, to have that and because it, it gives you the ability to kind of do that, support each other in that way. Yeah. And part of the part of that with, with two incomes also comes two sets of student loans in a lot of situations. <laughs> so then after a five year residency, my wife's like, what, you want to do a fellowship for two years? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, <laughs> I know it's not going to make rhinology money, but <laughs> but I want to I want to do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, 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 I think you're that's really good advice. And I mean, a situation where you, if you move somewhere, you both have to sort of look each other in the eye and be like, hey, if either of us, if this is not going to work out for either one of us, we both have to agree that we can make the change together. And so that's sort of what we said when we started here. It's like, I know it, it sounds great. You know, it's in Denver. We have easy access to our families. And But if if you don't like your job, you have to speak up about it. Don't just don't just stay quiet because I, it looks like things are going well with my job and, and vice versa. Because like you said, there is a privilege where we can move somewhere else. There's still a clinical need for our positions in other parts of the country. And we don't need to take a bar exam to go move to Florida. Uh, from Colorado or move to Ohio or wherever you want me wanting to move to. Do you think, Varun, that we talk enough with our medical students, fellows, residents, our colleagues about some of the things that come up? Like, do you feel like you had, a, I mean, you were 
it's great because you could just call Dr. Collins all the time, which is I'm sure was awesome. But like, how do you feel like we do it enough in our uh, in training or as a culture? Do we need otolaryngologists? The, that's a good question. And like I said, not everyone gets to have the relationship that I had with some of my mentors. Not everyone has a Dr. Collins or a Dr. Chetta at Florida that I can just call up and complain or ask advice to. But I think now having gone through it and, you know, missing, the, especially with me in private practice, I definitely miss interacting with residents and giving them advice both clinically and, you know, personally. But uh, as I, when I was a med student, no one talked about this. You know, when you're deciding on your specialty, you go to these career fairs and specialty fairs and no one talks about this at all. They just talk about, oh, you get to do this and you can do these types of surgeries and this is the pros and cons of the specialty. And they don't talk about the uh, significant other or the spouse at all. Then you start going through it and you see people deciding to do fellowships. You see people deciding not to do fellowships because they're family, because they have to move or because they can't afford to take a one to two year hit on salary <laughs> uh, because you know, they have two, three kids. And I think that's something that when, you know, interns PGY2s and they're deciding on a fellowship or not, they have to, I think it's important to tell them to look at the whole picture first and not just get, you know, romantic, rom not, no, not necessarily romanticized the specialty, you know, the uh, romanticized doing cochlear implants or acoustic neuromas all day or doing free flaps from, you know, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And really think about those things. And if your personal situation can accommodate those dreams that you have, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I think we don't talk about it enough, honestly, you know, especially in a surgical field, we focus on the cool surgeries and all the technological advances. And I get a very interesting perspective from my wife on how it is to be a woman, you know, in medicine and, and fighting some of the, the battles that she does. So I, I, I get a, a perspective that I would not otherwise necessarily see. You know, I also think, you know, dads are a lot more involved in some of the basic child rearing activities and kids are a lot more scheduled with activities now than they have been in previous generations. So I think both partners in a marriage are, are really, are really pushed, you know, um, to be in multiple places at one time. I think it is still a little bit taboo for guys to talk about that. You know, certainly it's not something people would feel comfortable bringing up in a residency interview or something like that, but it is something we should probably bring up a little more often um, because I think everybody feels torn and conflicted, you know, in trying to do multiple things. You know, I will say, I, I, I still think, you know, my wife, you know, carries a much bigger burden at home than I do. And for, I feel like kind of a slacker because she carries a pretty big burden at work too. <laughs> but we try to divide and conquer. You know, if she cooks, I do the dishes and there are certain things around the house that are mowing the yard and cleaning the pool are my job. And she handles all the school stuff and, you know, dealing with the teachers and homework and things like that. So, um, but it is something that we probably should talk to our residents and, and junior faculty about as well. Because that's, that's when a lot of, uh, you know, people really struggle. That's when people say, you know what, I just can't do this academic thing. You know, I don't have any time to write papers, you know, when I'm trying to raise kids and, and do all of this kind of stuff. So it probably is something, whether it's part of a curriculum, formal or informal mentoring, you know, because I think a lot of people kind of struggle with this on their own. You're right. I think that we do need a kind of, it, but in order to talk about it, you do have to share 
your personal life a little bit, right? Be open about it. My the poor. I usually op, I operate most Mondays, some Thursdays, and at the end of the day, we go around on whoever you know we've admitted. And so the poor resident that has to round me probably hears me with all the junk that's going on with my kids because I'm like, ah, oh, then Jai did this, Dax did this, and now we got to do this, and you know, or can you believe that this way? You know, they hear it because I just I, that's I can't help it. That's my time. I, the, like you get to do my cases, you have to listen to me vent now, okay? This how this works. Like, and so unfortunately, I'm probably a little too about what's happening. But I, I think those conversations are good because I, I, I think that um, because our, we have to remember our residents have their own personal lives, whether they have kids, whether they're married, spouses, engaged, and everybody's going through the same stuff, right? It's the same um, issues, and it's how we, you know, support each other, whether it's through a pregnancy, through a divorce, through uh, fertility, through, you know, losing a family member. I mean, there's so many different life, whether it's major life moments that can occur in a five-year period or early on as a fa- junior faculty and or even just the day-to-day, whether it's, hey, do you have you talked to your, like, do you and your husband or your wife or partner talk about these things? Like, you know, what, what's your routine like? And so having that dialogue and being engaged, I think consistently is important and how we support each other through some of those things, I think is, um, is paramount, right? It, it only um, makes who we are stronger as individuals as well as as a field. You know, yes, we're otolaryngologists and our primary uh, job is to be good clinicians and clinicians and surgeons, but it's beyond that, I think, and um, especially for career longevity and for satisfaction. And so I do think that those conversations and, you know, I, I don't, maybe it will be a formal curriculum. Uh, you know, I think that there's more stuff now that's a formal curriculum that wasn't five, 10 years ago. But I think just being okay to, you know, these conversations coming up of like, hey, the, you know, male resident that, you know, is taking paternity leave for a couple weeks. Awesome. Go do it. How, how do we, how do we make this a routine thing? It's not just the, you know, or in a, you know, with the, you know, female resident and, you know, there, there's just so much, right? And we forget that these, looking at the whole picture should start early on. Um, we're so used to, okay, I got to get this you know, step score or this AOA to get into this. And, you know, at a certain point, your life is not checking off boxes anymore. Um, you have to make some real life decisions and you're going to have things that you can't control. And a lot of those things will happen early on when you're not expecting it. And it's how we support each other through that. So, yeah, I think that, that those conversations, but it also requires us to have to open up about what's going on with us. And so that's why I just tell my residents when they run with me exactly what's going on. <laughs> No, that I think that's one of the things that make this podcast so useful because now trainees and, you know, residents, fellows, med students from around the country can get access to this information when it may not be formally delivered to them when they need it. And I actually still actually routinely call Pat Antonelli, who was the chairman when I was a resident at the University of Florida. And one of the words of advice he's given to me multiple times, because I'll call him this year, because as a junior physician out there who's not even technically a trainee anymore, I still need to hear it, these sort of things. And I'll always be like, yeah, I'm not networking enough. I need to put more of this in my clinic. I need to put more of that in my clinic. And he'll just say, just relax. Like you're just, you're doing what you want to do. Stop, just go home and spend time with your wife or your, your little daughter. I mean, just, just enjoy the things you have. You've hustled so hard all these years. Give it time. It's all going to happen. And that's also something as a junior faculty member, even at an academic center, they probably need to hear more often than they do um, is even beyond just the trainees. And like, did you guys get any sort of 
mentorship or guidance like that when you were just starting out? I can say I did not. You know, there were some role models that, you know, I would watch and see how they do things. One of my buddies from residency, you know, he would he would always say, you know, show me the the total picture, you know, because sometimes we would, you know, see somebody at an academy meeting, some leader in the field or whatever. And then, you, you know, you find out they've been divorced 10 times and four of their kids are in jail and but yet they have the full badge of ribbons and they're a speaker and presenter at, you know, six different societies. And, and, and he and I used to talk, you know, show me the whole picture, you know, how, how's your family life, you know, and, and that was always instilled in me from a young age. I mean, I was fortunate. My parents had a great relationship and I watched them. My mom went back to nursing school. I watched my dad, you know, pick up some of the, the extra workload around the house to make that happen you know, she worked really hard when he was starting a business. And so, so I had good role models at home, not as two physician household, but seeing that from a young age. And then as I've gone through my career, you know, there are some people that maybe don't have the biggest, shiniest CV in the world, but you look at them and you're like, man, like you got it together. You know, one of those was my, my fellowship mentor, Roy Cassiano down at Miami. And I mean, unbelievably productive, great guy, but he knew exactly what was going on with his kids and, and, and on the home front and was very involved. And that always, you know, stuck out to me that, you know, you, you can do both and it's a give and a take, but that was somebody that early in my career, I saw, okay, it can be done. This is maybe, I've been here at UT and Children's, this is nine years, um, I think, you know, in terms of the whole picture, I had definitely have mentors in terms of, you know, clinical and professional and academic and teaching practice, right? Like Ron Mitchell, Romaine Johnson, those are my, those are my people. I mean, I wouldn't definitely be where I am without sort of their guidance professionally. Um, but in terms of the whole picture, I think probably more in the last few years, I think I've made more of an effort to kind of find more people that are, you know, going through it you know, just like I am maybe, um, and making those connections. And, uh, you know, there, I think there is more female visibility too, right? Um, where we see more, you know, at meetings in the hospital and that's been helpful. I didn't really think I needed to see that before, especially as a medical student resident, like I'm fine. Yeah, I got this, you know, but that seeing it makes a difference. Um, because it, you feel like, okay, I can do this too. One and two, you see the challenges. It's not just you. Um, what are the nuances of the challenges? And so I think making more of an effort to reach out maybe for me is what I'm doing. I think the one person that stands out to me early on uh, is Dr. Ellen Deutsch. She was our uh, she was at DuPont Nemours. That's where we did our peds rotations and residency when I was at PGY2. And I remember she was probably the only female attending that we had at the time and who I'd seen through since medical school so in otolaryngology from medical school to up to that point and just being in awe like, oh, okay, and she's got kids and you know, all this stuff, I'm sitting here like the, you know, my mind is just, it's just, they're getting, I'm getting excited. And, you know, and so every time I would see her at a meeting, I'd still, it was like this sort of, you know, she always asked me how things were going. And it was like this sort of outlet, we could actually talk about, you know, kids and our husbands and, you know, the hospital and the practice and, you know, kind of have that perspective. And, you know, I don't get to talk to Dr. Deutsch as much as I would love to. And she's, she's so full of knowledge, but that was my one little outlet that, okay, I would always make sure I found one person or Sherry and Nathan. Uh, she was in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I kind of knew uh, Dr. Nathan separately because the Indian community was small there. And so 
you know, when I get to see Dr. Nitha at the meetings too, it's a nice like separate outlet. But from a whole picture mentorship, I think that that might be the way to kind of start connecting, especially with our trainees and residents and being more intentional about how we ask uh, how things are going so that if there is something more that they're going through in their lives, they, they have a support system to help them, you know, get through training, get, you know, continue on professionally, successfully. Now, we've covered a lot of really good topics here, and I'm sure we could make a much longer podcast if we just keep talking about ourselves. <laughs> and there's a lot of good advice to pass on. But Dr. Collins, do you have any uh, last words of advice, uh, you know, for trainees out there, junior faculty, or people, you know, pursuing careers or deciding on pursuing a career in medicine or um, ENT residency um, with their spouse is another physician? You know, I kind of think about that that interview question, like, what do you want on your tombstone? You know, and for me, it would be, you know, husband, father, surgeon in that order. And having a strong marriage and I've been so lucky, you know, to, you know, spent the last 23 plus years with my wife. And that has really enriched my life. Um, it's made it possible for, our, you know, us to raise three amazing boys and, you know, when I look at them, you know, you want to talk about, you know, having an impact in the world. And yes, we do that as, as physicians for sure. But I look at my boys and I'm, I'm so proud, you know, of what they can contribute to the world. And, you know, and we, we do it, we, I said it earlier, you know, we communicate and compromise. And sometimes that communicate means, you know, spending three hours, you know, sharing a bottle of wine next to a fire pit. You know, sometimes the communication is sitting next to each other on the couch, sending, you know, Outlook calendar invites to each other. So we know that we have our 7 a.m. meetings coordinated. And then, you know, really, I think as in any successful marriage and relationship, the compromise part, because there are times when, you know, my career or my needs may take precedent, or sometimes it's the kids or the boys. Uh, um, and then sometimes it's my wife. Um, so whatever's best for the, for the family. And we're, we're kind of a sports family. So, we, you know, we always talk about we're a team you know, and whatever's best for the team. And that's what we're all, all going to unite behind and do what's best for the, for the team or the family. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think it's important to keep, I think, honesty. I think Dr. Collins used that word early on. Um, it's important to continue to be honest with yourself and each other and your family and that things will change at different parts in your uh, life, your personal life, your career, professional life, your, your kids, their needs. And you know, I was, I think I told one of the residents, I was like, this is as best it's going to get is right now. <laughs> There's no like golden job. There's no golden life after this. This is what it is. And so you just make the best of it and be honest and be comfortable with, with that honesty because that, that's what's going to uh, allow you to grow and be flexible um, and things will change and that's okay. There's no such golden forever anything. It's, it's right now. And we kind of forget that because we're so used to trying to get to the next step. So the next step is right now. <laughs> well, I, I think you guys' advice is invaluable. Uh, but the only thing I've learned, I'm obviously very early in this process and in my career, but the communication with my wife is the most important thing. And our, you know, regular check-ins about, you know, our jobs, our mental status. And that is the most invaluable thing because we catch problems before they happen. And also keeping in touch with your mentors, talk to people regularly who have been through it, who have been in your shoes. And that's probably my biggest word of advice because people like Dr. Collins are the ones who've helped me along the way to help me stay sane. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Collins, for your time and your insight. Thank you, Varun, for hosting this and coming up with this topic and bringing this together. Um, it was a great opportunity and show. Thank you for our listeners for checking us out. If you're new or if you've come back and listened again, we appreciate comments, uh, feedback, suggestions. Remember to rate, subscribe, and like at underscore Backtable ENT. And I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Kieran Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor Spurgeon Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.